I think the value of trying is that you define yourself and you lean into certain things and you lean away from certain things. And I think everybody loves to do the things that they're best at, but it's actually good to try things that you're not so great at because then you are continuously learning. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. My name is Mike Flynn, and I am honored to be your host. Our mission here on the Impact Entrepreneur Show is not just to inspire you, but also to help you tap into and begin to believe in your God-given potential and purpose. That's right, baby. We want you to not only be inspired, but experience breakthrough. And we do that on this podcast by interviewing incredible people who are using their experiences, their skill set, their platforms to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. And here's the thing. None of these folks are simply sitting back, living a life of leisure. They have things to do, places to go, and lives to impact. Speaking of that, Vicki Oliver's favorite days begin when somebody writes to her and says they read her book and it helped them get a job. But Vicki didn't start her career writing about job hunting. It took quite a few twists and turns before she stumbled into a mission that she loved. Vicki got her start in advertising, but after September 11th in 2001, there were articles in the New York Times every single day about people switching their careers. And this wasn't because of a downturn in the economy. It was because they were looking inward and asking, am I doing what I want to be doing? Should I die tomorrow? And when people were honest with themselves, they started making gigantic changes. Vicky enjoyed writing commercials, but there was always the lingering feeling that she was making corporations rich, making millions of dollars for them without really enriching herself. So she looked at her skill, which was writing, and asked, can I do something else with this skill? Can I help more people? Throughout her career in advertising, Vicky was constantly looking for the next job opportunity, and she was actually really good at securing jobs that she wanted. She realized that she knew quite a bit about job hunting, and that was how she could help so many other people achieve their mission. And she started writing articles and then eventually a book. Even though Vicky made more money when she was in advertising, writing books turned out to be the thing that brings her the most satisfaction. As she says, if you look at what you love to do, you will probably be better at it than if you just do something because you think it's going to make you a lot of money. Now, we talk about job hunting, but we really spend most of our time talking about burnout. And that's what she's really passionate about. And that is what her most recent book is about. Bad bosses, crazy coworkers, and other office idiots. 201 smart ways to handle the toughest people issues. And one of those major issues is burnout. So bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Vicki, I am so curious to know who your childhood hero was. That's a really great question. I would say it was probably somebody like Virginia Woolf, <laughs> who said every woman deserves a room of her own. I was hugely influenced by that and by her. Tell me a little bit more about what that meant to you and, and what age were you when you started to engage with her work and, and what having a room of your own meant? Because obviously people might be thinking that Having a room of your own means, you know, in your house, you should just you know, have a room of your own where you sleep. But that's not really what she meant. No, I think that she meant everybody deserves a space where they can be independent, independent of their other obligations, like a thinking space. Hmm. And I felt that was hugely influential for me. I am an only child, so I did actually have a room of my own. (laughs) I didn't have to share it with siblings, but I understood that that was not what she probably meant. Hmm. And the age that I started reading her, I am not 100% sure. I mean, it was taught in my school, but I don't Mm -hmm. remember what grade I was in. When you think about 
your 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 upbringing and the people that were around you, your parents and and their friends and your friends and their parents. Did you have people around you that cultivated an environment where you had the freedom to be curious, the freedom to think, all of those things that kind of make up that room that that she was talking about? I feel like my parents believed that each person has their own talent. Mm -hmm. And from a very young age, it seemed like my talent was writing because I would be in my little room writing poetry, you know, and then I would write articles for the school newspaper and I would write for the school magazine. And it just seemed to be a talent that I had. So I would say they encouraged me to become talented at something. I also had thousands of things that I was untalented at and that I explored. Like I don't know how to ice skate particularly well, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there were lots of things I tried. Like I tried to play the violin. Okay, I'm not very good at that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of things I tried that I rejected, and I was able to go to my parents and say, you know, I really don't like ice skating, and I think I would like to try theater instead. You know, and so they allowed me to explore. Hmm. I love that. I- you know, I think that the most important thing that you did there was try many different things. And I, I don't think that many people, especially today, either by choice or just kind of a default learned system of belief, they don't try things. They don't attempt things because they're afraid that they might fail and how it might, how it might make them look, you know, among their peers or their, their family, et cetera. So what do you think the value of trying is? I think the value of trying is that you define yourself and you you lean into certain things and you lean away from certain things. And I think everybody loves to do the things that they're best at. But it's actually good to try things that you're not so great at because then you are continuously learning. Mm-hmm. And I think especially today, actually, we're in an environment where it's a good idea to be always learning something. It really is. I mean, the speed of technology is so fast, we hardly have a choice. You have to constantly challenge yourself. And when you try things that you're, you're bad at, you know, at least you're growing in that sense. You're saying, okay, I'm trying this and I'm growing. Okay. And I, I'm terrible at this, you know, but I'm still growing. What is something that you tried that you were not good at, but that taught you a lesson that you still carry forward with you today? Well, I tried to ski. Okay, that was a disaster. (laughs) (laughs) I think that taught me that I'm not that coordinated. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, really, honestly, I, I, I tried, you know, many, many different things. Like later, I would try out for performances, you know, plays, et cetera, that I wouldn't, you know, receive a role in. I just, I think it's good. You know, at one point I thought, I mean, later, I I started in advertising, in the advertising business, but there was one point when I said, you know, maybe I'd be a better lawyer. Hmm. So I, 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 I was right across the street. That ad agency was located right across the street from Stanley Kaplan in Manhattan. And I would tear across the street during lunch hour and I would take the LSAT, like practice LSATs, you know, to potentially change my career and go to law school. And then I was like, you know, I'm not sure about this, <laughs> but I, I tried it. You know, I think it's important to, to stretch and to sort of try on different hats and try different things. Um, I think it just makes you more well-rounded, but also maybe more compassionate. Because you know, you learn, you're not great at everything. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of, are you familiar with the concept of self-efficacy? No. Tell me about it. It's a a psychological theory uh, that a a gentleman by the name of Dr. Albert Bandura came up with many, many years ago. And like he's in his 90s now. But it really is about the the process of, of growing in confidence, right? And and there's value in in attempting things but you know starting where you are right so like you're not the analogy that i use frequently well i mean you used skiing right you were not 
uh, a good skier, but no. you didn't you didn't start out on the 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 double diamond the double black diamond slope. You started on the on the beginner slope, right? Yes. But but uh, maybe maybe if you had continued, you know, practicing at, in that on those bunny slopes, you would have you know grown in confidence and progressed from being able to wondering to yourself, can I do this thing to, I know I can do this thing to, I can do this thing to, I did do that thing. And, and then you're armed with information that you can do hard things. And I, I think that's a great challenge that we today face, whether it's in our careers or in our relationships is is the the reality that we are going to encounter difficult and challenging things and that we are enough to handle it right 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 there's there's this there's this whole mantra that's going on in the world right now about i am enough right you are enough right right but it's a, it's an incomplete sentence you are enough to take on the difficulties and challenges that you're going to experience in life you are capable of handling them, you just have to face them. You can't run from them, right? And uh, and that you know the process of being curious, of trying things, is a way to develop efficacy because you can you, the the continuous process of learning will reinforce the fact that you you can learn that just you know it may not you you might the thing that you might learn is that skiing is not for you. But but that's you because you engaged in the process, you were able to to learn that information. Right. When you when you think about your family and your friends growing up, what is the the characteristic, the trait, the emotion, the experience that you value most in them? So I I mean, even today, first of all, I grew up here in New York City, and I'm still living here in New York City. I'm one of those rare people that I, I live like 30 blocks from where I grew up, you know? Wow. And so I know it's really very, very weird, but it's great because I have many of those same friends. I mean, I went to high school here, a couple of different high schools here, you know, and then I, I left to go to college, but everybody, you know, basically came back to New York and we're all living here and it's really wonderful so those old friends they're still my friend you know and of those friends that i grew up with i really value the fact that they're supportive and also i went to a great high school and they also are not competitive it's like one of these fantastic things where they completely support you but they don't compete against you and i love that hmm. Is that was that Trinity College or, or the high school? I, I, yes. Yeah, I, I, I read I read that in your okay. I was your like, bio. Whoa, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah, I read I read yeah. that in your bio. Yeah, they, that was that was how the school you know was back then, and um, and so it's really fabulous to have that kind of network of people that really care. You know, they really care, and they we all want to see each other succeed, but we're not cutthroat. Yeah, I, I think that's really really great. I, I think that that is, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm also an author. Oh. Um, and I wrote a fictional story. It's a motiv motivational fiction. It's called Master the Key. Oh, nice. A story to free your potential, find meaning, and live life on purpose. And the key represents our identity. And our identity is broken into four pieces. Our story, our gifts, our action, and our community. And what you just beautifully described there is is two of the three elements that make up a phenomenal community. The first is wild curiosity that that they are curious about your success as much as if not more than their own. Right. And that they're eager to collaborate with you. And that is such a rare commodity these days. This wild curiosity is almost like selfless level of curiosity where you know that each person in that room is competing in their own race but they're eager they're eager to help you win yours at the same time right who were some of the people in your high school that helped cultivate that environment i would just say i mean actually 
Well, the people that I was actually in class with, you know, my friends in my own class, my own grade, but also some of the teachers. I mean, this is just a great little thing. So, okay, another thing I wasn't particularly good at was chemistry, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, but you, you know, and me I both. <laughs> you know, it was terrifying. I would do the experiments and without the, you know, great lab partner I had, none of the experiments would have worked, right? But I needed to have good grades. And on my chemistry exam, I wrote a note to myself and the note was, don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote it on the exam book, like a little note to myself, don't panic, you know, exclamation point. And I mean, the teacher later told me that I got a half a grade higher because he couldn't stop laughing, you know? Oh that note. <laughs> That's funny. And now, did he think the note was written to him? Don't panic when you go through my exam. <laughs> I don't think so. I think yeah. he got it. I think he got it. You know. You know. You mentioned early on that that you found your, you tried a lot of things, but you really began to hone in and discover your talent for writing and develop that. At what point did you ultimately? decide to become a writer because I also read that you went to Brown and you know there's a it's a great institution and there there are a lot of wonderful people that come out of that institution but most of them go on into finance into law into you know etc not many go in not as not as many I should say go into be a career in professional writing so what emboldened you to do so Okay, so thank you for asking me that question. So when I left Brown, I went into advertising. And my first job, I was a receptionist with a great Brown degree. I was a receptionist. And I grew in the advertising business from receptionist eventually to become a creative director, moving ad agencies frequently and moving up and moving over, moving laterally, you know, et cetera. However, September 11th, 2001 was a defining moment for everybody, but especially people who live in New York City like me. Mm. And at that moment, not that day, but the many months afterward, there were articles in the New York Times every single day about people switching their careers because people were looking inwards and saying, you know, am I doing what I want to be doing, should I die tomorrow? And people were making huge, gigantic changes. And the articles in particular had a humongous impact on me because I was in advertising and I was writing commercials and I was writing print ads and I enjoyed it. But I was also feeling that I was making corporations rich without really enriching myself. I was making, you know, millions of dollars for giant companies. And I then looked at my skill, which was writing. And I said, I wonder if I could do something else with this skill. Could I use it to do something else? Maybe something that would help people more. And because I was in advertising, I was always looking for another job, always getting the job. And then maybe three years later, leaving the job. I mean, it was like a sort of a giant revolving door at that time. And I said to myself, maybe I'm learning more about job hunting even than advertising. And so I decided to write a book about job hunting. At the same time, I just want to say that in the advertising business, because I was rising, I would be hiring people to come work on my team as a creative director to come work on my team. And the people would roll in and they wouldn't know my name and they wouldn't know our clients and they wouldn't know anything much about the ad agency either. And there were maybe 150 times in my head that I said, you know, I'm going to write a book about job hunting because this guy is blowing it, you know, with me. (laughs) And so eventually, you know, I did write the book. I wrote a book about job hunting. I mean, I wrote articles about job hunting before I wrote the book. And I asked people at that time, please tell me your story. And I gave them my personal email address. And so people started writing to me. So the first article I ever published about job hunting was in Adweek magazine, was trade magazine for the advertising business. It was about job hunting. And I said at the end, like, tell me your story. And I gave them my email address and I got a hundred responses to the first article. 
And I called Adweek and I'm like, is this normal? Is this normal? I got a hundred replies on the article and they said, no, it's not normal. And I'm like, well, what is normal? And they said, maybe two replies is normal. Hmm. And so they said, can you start sending us your best letters? So I sent them my best emails that I had received and my responses to them. And then they started publishing those in the letters column. So the original article got a lot of play, you know, for many months afterwards. And then I said, you know, I think I'll write some more articles about job hunting. And I did. And I did the same thing with the email. And so it was really good for me because it made me realize, first of all, that there's a whole community again, you know, there was a whole community of people who were struggling in their jobs and looking for jobs. And I got to hear their stories, you know, and go like outside of just the advertising business or outside of just New York City, you know, and it just informed me. And then I was like, you know, I think, I think there's a book here. And so that was my first book. And then, of course, I had to persuade people to publish it. That's a whole other thing. But that oh, was yes. my first book. Yeah. Yeah. That is an amazing story. Yeah. The uh, 9-11 was certainly a, 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 a great tragedy for the entire country, but especially those living in New York and working there and was a catalyst for many people. I actually had a, another man, another guest on the show, a man named John Foley, who is a former, the, the former lead solo pilot of the Blue Angels. Wow. And uh, I had asked him, you know, have you ever seen the Blue Angels perform? No. You, you, ha- like, you have to go see them perform at some point because we're, Good. I mean, they're, they're amazing. Um, you know, they're the, dem- they're the demo team for the United States Navy, uh, you know, um, right. and fighter pilots. And, and the precision and performance that they, you know, exhibit is second to none. And, and one of the things that they wear as part of their uniform, obviously, is this helmet. But this helmet has a special visor, a gold visor that enables them to stare directly into the sun and without squinting or losing any of their vision. And so I asked him about a moment he had in his life where he had to put down that visor that proverbial visor and stared directly into the sun. And for him, it was also 9-11 because he had ju- he had left the, the Navy. He was going to start... He had started an entertainment company called Center Point Entertainment. And he was going to basically become the, the NASCAR of air races. And uh, then, and he was in the d- process of signing a deal with ESPN when when nine eleven happened, and oh, that, wow. and he had put all of his chips on the table for that. And ESPN and the other parties pulled the deal because nobody was investing in in airplanes at that time or, or right. air races or anything of that nature. So, you know, he had to reinvent himself after that moment. And and he's doing exceptionally well today and has a management consulting company called Center Point Consulting. And he speaks all over the world and teaches these uh, great lessons that he learned as a Blue Angel. And he wrote a book called Fearless Success. Anyway, um, so, you know, it's, it speaks to the fact that no matter what tragedy that we experience in life, whether it happens to us directly or those around us or the environment around us that we all have the capability to rise from the ashes and to become become stronger yeah as a result of that and so thank you for sharing that story friends if you have not yet picked up a copy of master the key i want to encourage you to hit pause head over to amazon and pick up a copy or two of this transformational book and don't just take my word for it here is another great review from dan on amazon his review is titled the most life impacting few hours you can invest the author uses a compelling narrative about an individual reaching rock bottom and rebuilding his life with the tools of perspective purpose and faith the reader is engaged to examine their own life and reflect 
the lessons the protagonist goes through towards self-actualization. The author does an excellent job of concisely getting to the heart of truth without grandiose language or self-aggrandizement. Reading Master the Key is the most life-impacting few hours you can invest. Thank you so much, Dan, for that beautiful review. I'm glad that the book is having an impact in your life. Please share it with others. Now hit pause, head over to Amazon, pick yourself up a copy. Be sure to leave a review after you're done reading it and pass this book along to someone that you love. Now back to the show. When you decided to leave the advertising industry and become a writer, were you nervous, anxious, um, doubtful, or were you fueled by so much frustration about how much you were helping corporations win that it gave you all the fire you needed to succeed? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I have to confess that I was terrified to do it and (laughs) I didn't do it in one big step. I did it very gradually. I first, I went freelance, you know, and I did freelance work in advertising for, you know, years and years while I wrote my first book, while I wrote my second book, while I wrote my third book. I mean, my the reason I was doing that was, first of all, the money is better <laughs> in advertising than it is in publishing. I hate to say it, but it's true. Uh, but also because I write about career issues. So I wanted to be in touch with... I didn't want the technology to change. And I'm writing about old technology when that Technology doesn't exist any longer. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I'm Mm -hmm. writing about fax machines, but nobody's faxing. Mm -hmm. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I felt like keeping a hand in was a great idea to do. Mm -hmm. And I, so I would freelance and I did that and did that and did that. And then eventually it became tougher because as you get more books, then you have to promote the books. You know, there's a whole subset of writing that few people talk about, which is the marketing of the book. So yet, hard. <laughs> it's so difficult. It's so time consuming. And to do it well, you know, you really, I believe you really should be marketing half the time, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like two jobs, you're writing and then you're marketing. Mm-hmm. And so it just became harder and harder to, to then go freelance because that would be like three jobs. But, but I did it very gradually. You know, I'm a big believer in taking baby steps, take baby steps and see if it fits mm-hmm. first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going back to your whole uh, kind of childhood of trying things and 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 learning, right? And some of those things stuck, and some of those things you you let go of. Exactly. You know, it, I love that you're you're writing about careers and and development, and it's so interesting because I think that we are. I know that we are, and the data shows that we are in this really interesting inflection point in the history of working. So. To, "Quote unquote," right of, of careers. In fact, you know, Doctor Jordan Peterson recently said that most people don't have careers; they have jobs, right? Right, and th- that's true because you know the average, you know, n- number of years at a, at any one particular job or career was eleven eleven years, and now it's it's significantly dropped. Right. <laughs> uh, I think it's like two, maybe. <laughs> And on the high end, if you're a real loyal loyal soldier. But even then, you have 85%. Gallup came out with this a study recently, a global report that that revealed that 85% of workers are actively disengaged at work. Right. And then if you just take that, you shrink that down to the US, it's 70%. And it's costing the U.S. businesses half a billion or five hundred billion dollars a year uh, in revenue, right? And then of that hundred and fifty million people that work in some level in the United States, forty percent of them are pursuing a a side hustle, quote unquote, that they're more passionate about. <laughs> and and you're an expert in career development, but in the process of doing that, you've probably also become a pretty pretty close to an expert in entrepreneurship and and you've learned that most businesses fail in the first five years right so here's the question I'm leading to something because you've got eighty five percent of the world that's disengaged when they're at work 
You've got 40% of them that are pursuing, pursuing a side hustle that they're quote unquote more passionate about. Most people don't really know what they're passionate about because they don't know who they are, what they're supposed to do, where, when they're supposed to show up, and who they're supposed to show up with. And ultimately, when that business fails, that side hustle fails, they're still stuck at that work, that, 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 that job that they hate, that they're burned out on. Right. So what in the heck do they do to avoid repeating that cycle over and over again every 2.5 years? First of all, I think if you look at what you love to do, probably you will be better at it than if you just do something because you think it's going to make you a lot of money. So I know a lot of people um, who write screenplays and what they want, you know, is that big screenplay that hits. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, and that big, you know, movie and the deal and the money. And I think if you're after money and you're trying something creative, a lot of times I think the money doesn't come. It's bizarre. I feel like if you just love to write, let's say, and you do it and you're just doing it because you enjoy it and it's fun for you, I think fun is an important component of success, especially in a creative endeavor. And I think you will do better. Mm. You know, Malcolm Gladwell, who I am hugely influenced by, he believes that, like, for example, the skiing thing that we brought up earlier, right? Well, Malcolm Gladwell will say, you can do anything well if you spend 10,000 hours doing it. But 10,000 hours is a gigantic time commitment, right? So I think when I first started writing, one of my mentors said to me, you should write about something where you can see yourself writing about it for five years, you know? Mm -hmm. And at the time, I thought, oh my God, five years, that's just such a long time, right? But I've been writing about job hunting for a lot longer than five years now, you know? And it's because I love to write about it. If you love something, you'll do better at it. That is my personal opinion. That said, you know, let's be honest, there's a lot of luck involved in any success. There's luck. That is a component. I mean, there's timing, there's luck, there's who you know, you know, there's how much you push your contacts to help you too. There's like a lot you can do, one can do to be more successful, but it takes work. You know, it's not just like the best book that gets published. Mm -hmm. It's how much that person works it, you know, mm -hmm. who they know. Do they go to conferences? Do they try to meet people, you know? Was their was their father a publisher, you know, or do you have to like meet a hundred people to meet that one person, you know, that will publish your book? So there's a lot of work involved, I think, in any success, and there's a lot of groundwork that people can do. I feel in creating a more successful probability. You know, I, I love everything you just said there, and I, and I actually want to talk about pushing your contacts because I think that. Many people are afraid to ask for help. They're afraid to. Um, and one of my former guests came up with an acronym. I think I think she coined this acronym, which I think is amazing, as it relates to asking for help. And it, and asking for help is appreciating a someone's s knowledge. Okay, right. Ask. Okay. And I think that many of us are afraid to do that because. We're afraid of rejection, all the typical things. And, and we also don't do, we don't know how to ask. We don't do the, the work up front to prepare our question. Because naturally, if I ask you, Vicky, for help, you're going to say, okay, well, what do you need? I don't know how I can help you, you know? Right. Um, so we have to do the work up front to, you know, be prepared for that uh, rebuttal type question. But people are really afraid of, you know, asking their contacts for help because they feel like it might, you know, breach trust, whatever, you know, you know, it threatens their relationship. And I, I, I contend that if you are feeling that way, you, you need to question the validity and the, and the, the strength of the, your relationship if you're, but how do you, how did, can you share a story where as you're launching out on this new journey where you had to really 
lean heavily on your contacts or on a contact in particular to help you. Right. So, I mean, I was taking a screenwriting. So I was on a journey to find out what else I could write besides advertising copy. Not that there's anything wrong with advertising copy, but what else could I write? So I took a lot of different writing classes in a lot of continuing education programs here in New York, because New York is great for that. There's a lot of continuing ed here. And I was taking a screenwriting class when in the screenwriting class, for some reason, I started writing articles about job hunting. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some of the students were not so supportive of like, well, why aren't you writing a screenplay? Well, because I was writing articles about job hunting. That was what was coming out of me, you know? But the teacher was unbelievably supportive. And the teacher kept encouraging me to write more of them. And then I said to the teacher, well, okay, what happens after I write more articles? Like, what's the next step? And then he was like, well, you know, maybe you could write a book about it. And so then I said to him, well, okay, but how would I ever get that thing published? And he said he would introduce me to somebody. And I met that person and I asked him, okay, this is my, because this, this type of book that I write, you do it in terms of a proposal. So I wrote a proposal and proposals are supposed to be about 50 to 80 pages. And mine was about 200 pages. <laughs> and right. So it was like half a book already. Um, and then I said to him, like, okay, I don't know, like, here's this unwieldy proposal that I have. But I have a lot of ideas. You know, what do I what do I do? And so he said, well, he knew like two agents that he would introduce me to. And so I sent the thing to two agents and they both kind of liked it. And one of them, like real of the two, one of them really liked it. And so that person became my first agent. So Mm -hmm. I was lucky because agent finding an agent is very, very difficult. And usually it takes like hundreds of inquiries to do it. But because somebody helped me by introducing me personally, I was able to have that lift up. So mm-hmm. that was that was very, very, very helpful. So I guess I leaned heavily on one of my continuing education teachers. Have you ever heard of Dr. Randy Pausch and the, the, um, the last lecture? Yes. So he has this line that he, and I'm, I'm, I've been trying to get it from my memory bank, but I'm totally going to ruin it. And it has to do with luck, you know? And basically, I think he said, luck is the road where preparation meets opportunity. Oh, nice. Something along those lines. And so it, it boils down to you make your own luck, right? Like if you had not done the work and and started taking action even if it's baby steps toward writing not and then you meet that person nothing would have happened there would be right. no opportunity for providence chance luck to show up and to and to work in your favor right i mean and so it, it, we all have to have the courage to begin to act and as it going back to career you know, it's such a rare thing today with so much turnover, so much jumping around, so much, you know, we're, we, we are at a, at a pretty high employment level, but most people don't have careers. They have jobs. And, and a lot of that stems not because they're not good necessarily at what they're doing or they don't have skills or abilities or gifts or talents where they're working, but it's just they don't have the proper relationship with their work. And I'd love for you to share some of the the things that you have learned in your research about what makes a, a really great, satisfying, fulfilling career in the 21st century today. Well, I think it helps when people, when workers buy in to the mission that the company has. And I think if you're a boss out there and you're listening to this, I would say, you know, try to articulate the mission of your company or your organization in terms that somebody can embrace. You know, a mission is not just about improving the bottom line, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, how is your service, your company, your corporation helping people? 
how is it helping people? How is it improving lives? You know, and try to look at it that way. Try to be noble about it and reach up. And I think, you know, you want to try to capture like literally the hearts and minds of the people that work for you. And leadership is a privilege. You know, it's not just like who has the corner office and who makes the most money. People have to want to work for you. And I think if you think that way, if you're a boss, I think it will help a lot. It will help your employee retention. It will help inspire the people who work for you. It's it's interesting you say that. I I, I think leaders today have really a, a really difficult uh, task ahead of them. They are almost like at a watershed level where, on the one hand, they have the constituencies of the people that they are leading, and to to implement the company's vision, mission, and goals. And on the other hand, they have all of the 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 stakeholders, like the shareholders, the the executive leadership team, you know, the 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 customers, the consumers, all of that stuff. And and they have to man it's a lot to manage, right? Because we're at the end of the day, we're all human. Right. And we all have fears, anxieties, hopes, dreams, disappointments, expectations not met. And and you have to lead with with that with that understanding. So I guess what I'm what I'm kind of asking is if you know that 85% of the people that show up at your organization are actively checked out at some point in the day and you are trying to lead them what do you do well you know so i've written about burnout and i think part of burnout yeah, can you just plug your give the name of your book right now actually okay so it's my book is called bad bosses crazy coworkers and other office idiots and it handles many different uh, aspects of personalities at the office, you know, but today burnout is impacting 28% of people, 28% of workers feel burned out, which is really one out of three, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there are different reasons for burnout. It can't just be looked at as one horrible thing. There's lots of different reasons, but one of my theories about why it's so prevalent now has to do with technology. Technology is moving so fast and companies, many feel like they can't keep up with technology and they can't hire the people fast enough who can keep up fast enough. It's like technology has outpaced you know, many companies and there's anxiety about that. And the anxiety, like if the CEO of the company feels anxious, that anxiety filters down, you know, and the people who are working for that CEO feel anxiety about this. Now, part of, part of the cure, you know, part of that, something that people can do is they can continuously learn and try to keep up with technology, but it's still going to outpace a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I think somebody can do you know, at the at the very top of the company is try not, try very hard not to have your own personal anxieties filtered down because the people who work for you can feel it. They can feel it. Try to set up boundaries so that you're not texting your employees at two in the morning because you know what? They're going to text you back <laughs> and <laughs> constantly feeling like, you know, everybody, we all feel, I do too. We all feel like we're on call. We're all on call 24 seven. And I personally feel that we're on call, but our bodies are not made to be on call 24 seven. You know, we need vacations. We need buffer zones. We need to get away. We need to turn off our devices and not, not always be on call 24-7. If you feel like you're on call 24-7, I know I actually feel that way, but I'm also going on vacation in three days. Nice. <laughs> when, you, when you feel like you're on, you know, on call, it is time to actually say, you know what, I'm going to unplug this weekend. I am not going to answer an email. I'm not looking at my laptop. And that is that. That's what I'm going to do. I am not going to be there. 24-7 because eventually 
It's like our buffer zones erode and we all feel burned out. And if you are at the top of the company, don't make your employees feel that way. You know, take a break yourself and realize that everybody's going to come back more refreshed if you don't push them and push them and push them. Don't make them work all night long, you know? I think that's incredibly powerful advice. At the same time, I think it's important to acknowledge that as at the leadership level and at, at all levels throughout the company, that there is that anxiety, right? That that I think everybody in in any organization is walking around exhibiting some level of pretense or pretending, right? And I think that we need to have the courage to stand up and say, you know what? To have, as you know, Brene Brown talks about vulnerability, right? To to, to engage in in a vulnerable moment in a way that kind of takes the air out of the room a little to, to a certain yeah. degree and gives people space. What is a healthy way for leaders to approach doing something like that? Yeah, I like what you're saying. I mean, to be honest about it with the people that work for you and say, you know, we are falling behind. We can't afford to do it. You know, we have to try to do better. But but also, you know, as a leader, I also feel it's their job, you know, to hire the people that hire the, you know, spend the money. You know what I mean? Sometimes you have to spend the money to get the experts in, you know, to diagnose the IT issue that you have, you know, are your servers, you know, terrible? Like you have to sometimes invest money to make problems go away. It's just a fact. It's a fact. So, you know, I think honesty and transparency can help. And I also think just cutting the employees a break and not expecting them, you know, because the other part of it is, even though we're pretty much at full employment, I don't feel like all the layers have come back in the companies. So mm-hmm. what's happening is that everybody's doing like five jobs. You know, you're kind of doing your own job. You're doing somebody else's job. Maybe you're also your own assistant. It's like everybody is sort of an entrepreneur in their own companies. And everybody's doing five or six jobs. Like we're all wearing all these different hats. And I think that also contributes a lot to the burnout factor because it's harder to do five things mediocrely than to do one thing brilliantly. It just Mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. That is a quotable moment right there. That is so true. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. You know, at the same time, we we have to we can't wait for the leaders to show up. We have self-leadership precedes team leadership, right? Right. And and so we have to almost lead by an example in how we show up. And so what are some ways, some tips that people listening, maybe, maybe they are considering leaving you know, their, their job and starting something new and, and you know, serving some other audience or community, or maybe they are really committed to where they're at, but they're, they're just frustrated with what's happening. What can they do better? How can they better show up? Right. So, I mean, first of all, if you are working for somebody and you believe that your boss is burned out, I actually think it's a great opportunity for you. It's a great opportunity to take on a little more and help the situation because it can only make you look good to help. It makes you shine and it makes your boss also shine. So don't, don't grouse about it, you know, realize it's an opportunity and step in. But do it, I would suggest, a tiny bit at a time because you yourself don't want to burn out. You don't want to take on so much of somebody else's job and their tasks that you instantly burn out. So that mm-hmm. would be the first thought. The second thing is, and this is in my book, 
um, bad bosses, crazy coworkers, and other office idiots. I really believe that most of the problems, especially personality issues, but most of the problems that exist in one company of a certain size is going to exist identically in another company of the same size. So if you have a workaholic boss and that's driving you crazy, it's better to learn how to deal with that person rather than just jumping to another place because you're going to find the same personality type someplace else and then you're going to have to deal with it there. So actually, I feel like, you know, the grass is not necessarily greener at another company. And, you know, it's not always such a great idea to jump all the time because usually you can do better over the long term if you stay. So if you can stay at a place for five years, you're better off than being in five different companies over the five years. I mean, in terms of your title and the money that you earn, usually you're better off staying. Mm, that is very helpful advice. And I think incredibly insightful and a little bit counterintuitive to the popular message of today. Just you know, go start a side hustle and, and work your way out of it. Oh my gosh, that was so cool. You know, Vicky, we are coming up on an hour and it's been we could we could keep going because this topic is something I'm I'm very fascinated by and you are an expert in and also passionate about and willing to suffer for and have in, in throughout your writing career. And as we conclude, I'd love to first point people in the direction where they can interact with your work online, where they can uh, go and purchase your books. Um, your most recent one in particular, I'm sure is available on Amazon and other places. Yes. Right. So the most recent run one is called Live Like a Millionaire Without Having to Be One. Um, and all my books are available on Amazon and in bookstores, places where books are sold. Um, if you want to reach out to me, my name is Vicki Oliver and my website is Vicky V-I-C-K-Y, Oliver.com. And just send an email and say you heard the show and you know, ask a question or whatever. And you can see on her website, like spend some time on there because there's I mean, a ton of press. I mean, she's been featured all over the place over the last 10 years. So, you know, definitely spend some time looking into her great work there. Now, as I mentioned to you in our email correspondence, I, I always conclude each conversation with the same three questions. The first question is if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? I would say insight. Ooh. I, you know, it goes, I don't know if it's a superpower, but I, I feel like, you know, you always know. And so I'm a big believer in trusting your gut, you know, trust your gut, trust your third eye, you know, you know, you know, Mm. if what you're doing is good, you know, if it could use work, you know, look inside. Yes. You know that I love that you said that. It's actually, um, there's two sayings that I'll share with you that, that are related to insight. And I think that one of the mistakes that people make about insight is they think that they don't have any for their own life. They have to go some, someplace else. But there's this Catholic saint named St. Augustine who said that, uh, do not wander far and wide, but return to yourself for deep within dwells the truth. Yeah. And, and I love that saying. And then another saying actually comes from the book of Proverbs and it says, the purposes of one's heart are deep waters, but one with insight draws them out. And I think that we all have that gift and it's something that we can all cultivate by just pausing, listening, doing hard things, pausing and listening and doing hard things again. Right. The next question is, what are three lies that we tell ourselves that prevent us from realizing that we're capable of doing great things? I think it might just be one. I think, you know, feeling like you're too old, you know, to start something different. Somebody's doing it better than you. Like you'll never be as good as that person. I think those are two. Oh, and that you don't have the comfort zone to do it. You know, you can't afford to do it because it's mm-hmm. too much money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, those are three powerful lies. Actually, have you read or heard of the book called Late Bloomers by no. Rich Gargard? 
no, but I want to go buy it right now. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's actually he's the publisher of Forbes magazine, and he uh-huh. uh, he wrote a book called Late Bloomers, and it specifically talks about how you would actually really be fascinated with, with, by his writing because it's a it's a compliment to some of the things that you're doing. And the the world is obsessed with early achievement. Yes, and and we place way too much focus on that. Right, and so when we're like forty five, fifty, we feel like you know we can't achieve anything because the ship has sailed. Right, right, and and that our our decades of work experience have no value if we start over again someplace. And those are just not true. That that right. those are just lies. So he he wrote a great book, and it's. Talks about his story. He uses has several case studies in there, and um, it, it's just a really rich book. So I highly encourage. He's a oh, great. Past, past guest on the show as well. Excellent. Last question. It's a hundred years from now, and you have left a per, You've given permission for one of your favorite up and coming writers to to write your biography. You know, you're you're gone though. You know, so then you you said at this point, a hundred years after my passing, you know, the, the next up and coming uh, memoir writer can write my biography. But they the 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 question that they that you have to answer for them is how will Vicky Oliver measure her life? And you've left a set of written instructions on what to include, what might be in those instructions. Well. You mean how would I measure my life, or how will this writer look? How will you dead? Yeah. How will how will you measure your life? You know, you, you, they have to write this memoir, but you're trying to guide their the way that they approach it by by answering how I will measure my life. Well, I just want to say that my favorite days begin when somebody writes to me and they say that they read my book about job hunting and it helped them get a job. And I feel like I've helped people that I've never met in my life get work. And that makes me really happy. Mm. Yeah, that's the ultimate gift right there. I mean, you're, you pursued this, this career in writing. You had this talent. You've given it away. You, just didn't, you didn't do it for free, but you've given it away in, in the service of other people not necessarily to line your own coffers and it's having that impact and that is the ultimate definition of love right and in the process you've you've come to know more about yourself i would imagine right like i don't know who said this but i have heard people refer to books that are they're almost like advice that you give your younger self mhm you know, mm-hmm. and I think that can be very interesting and powerful to think about too. You know, what mm-hmm. advice would you give your younger self? And that's what you're writing, you know? Well, what, speaking of that, let's just add another question real quick, because I, I don't typically ask that question. But uh, since you brought it up, what advice would you give your 21 year old self? I would say stretch. That's the advice I would give stretch because my 21 year old self like my parents always said well you can't really earn enough money as a writer to live you know mm-hmm. and i i would say stretch yes you know, I, I love that you know or secondly maybe like take the leap like mm-hmm. sometimes you just have to leap you know mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. you just have to say you know what i'm just gonna leap and try it what year did you graduate high school Never tell anybody that sensitive information. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, so what would you tell your thirty year old self? Fast forward after you know, after your 21 year old self has some experience. It's the same. It's the same. It's like always try to leap, always try to stretch, and you know, just sort of like the Nike commercial, just do it, mm-hmm. just try it, try it. You know, mm. I w- but. It must be countered with the pragmatism of, you know, like don't quit your day job and then just say, okay, I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to make a million dollars a year. You know what I mean? It needs Mm -hmm. to be balanced. Mm -hmm. And that's where I I go to the baby steps. Like sometimes there's a way to try something out in a baby manner first. Take a class, you know, 
write a short story. Don't write a novel, you know, write a short story, write an article, write something little, do little steps. Or, you know, corporately, do volunteer work. Do volunteer work that covers the skills you would need in a different job. See if you like it, try it on. Vicki Oliver, this has been a full, refreshing and fascinating conversation. So thank you for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Thank you for having me. Thank you to this week's guest and thank you for listening. If you missed any of the key points and highlights from my conversation, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash podcast for show notes to each and every episode. And while you are there, check out Flynn Wealth Strategies and Insurance Solutions. You can do that by visiting flynnwealthstrategies.com. The Lot Marketing Group and the Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them and with all of their support. Now, until next time, go make an impact.